Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. And welcome to the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio with Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. I'm your host, Ron Brown. Uh, University and college presidents are under fire for their response or their lack of a response on anti-Semitism on campus. Our first guest, Professor Max Johnsonbach, who's a professor at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Hi, Professor. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, in your recent Chicago Tribune op-ed, you co-authored with Professor Kim Yurako, who's also at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, you discuss how some universities have been hypocritical in how they have handled hate speech and physical intimidation after the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel. Tell us more. Uh, well, let's start with the speech issue. And let me just make clear that we have to set aside uh, public universities because they have constitutional and procedural obligations that private schools don't have. Um, and so let's just stick to private schools for now. So have uh, most private schools promise that they will engage in speech regulation that is content neutral. Um, and so the question is, have universities held to that promise, right? And so we can trade anecdotes, and many of them were traded during the hearings that have been, you know, so widely shared on social media. Um, but I thought I would maybe uh, just offer some broader evidence, which is to say there's survey evidence of students and faculty out there about how free they feel to speak on campus, particularly about hot-button social issues, not just issues of race and, and sex, but also maybe other issues like abortion and even COVID. And the answers come back that they don't feel uh, free to speak about those issues, in part uh, because of their peers, but also because of how they uh, fear the university will regulate that speech. And maybe sort of as a second point along these lines, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Expression, uh, which is a nonprofit that it involves more than just universities, but they focus a lot on universities, released a ranking. And uh, of the top 50 schools, the best 50 schools for speech, 46 out of the top 50 are public institutions that have to follow the First Amendment. Okay, only five, four private schools make the mark. The bottom schools are largely private schools, heavily elite um, public schools. Um, and maybe to give one just brief anecdote, uh, which was shared on Twitter today, the current DEI training at Stanford uh, that faculty have to go through, some people are sharing screenshots that said, well, one of the ways you know discrimination might be taking place is that people are questioning whether the DEI office has gone too far, right? And so we also have trainings that sort of reinforce uh, this type of non-content neutral speech regulation. Uh, and then when you get into behavior, I think that's sort of a separate issue. Universities promise to regulate student behavior and create a space and environment where learning can take place. And when they don't do that in an equitable fashion, uh, they are also in breach of that promise. And so those are uh, two contract points. Maybe we'll get into Title VI later. Yeah, what, I mean, what are some examples? Uh, you mentioned anecdotes. What's a, an, an example that our listeners and viewers could 
maybe understand in terms of the inequitable application of these rules and also misapplying or or acting in violation of of the law? Okay, so uh, there's 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 really sort of two issues that we have to separate a little bit. One is what the universities promise to deliver in their student handbooks. And then the other is what the federal government regulations obligate them to do if they take public funds. So in their handbooks, they promise content-neutral speech regulation. And I think the evidence that they really don't follow through on that is is pretty overwhelming. Um, I'll give you an example from Northwestern if you want one. So about eight years ago, Laura Kipnis uh, wrote, a professor at Northwestern wrote an op-ed in which she questioned the university's policy on sex discrimination sexual consent, and Title IX. And she was slapped with a Title IX complaint. Now, it is true, it was eventually found in her favor, but she, but not until there was a full-blown investigation, a multi-hour hearing, and an external law firm was retained to investigate her. There was no summary dismissal of this uh, claim that arose purely out of an op-ed she had written. The process in that case was the punishment. Okay, And the fact that they could do this process was a punishment. And so those are the kind of anecdotes you can, you can weed through. Um, when it becomes a matter of federal law, however, is when um, the treatment is disparate by race or sex. And that Title VI prohibits this disparate treatment by race. Title IX would pro- uh, prohibit the disparate treatment by sex. And so if you're punishing uh, students who speak out about a uh, issue about uh, a racial issue, uh, but you only punish one side, uh, that would probably be a Title VI violation. And universities could potentially uh, lose federal funding for that, but it also contains a private right of action. And so if you want to go to a a complaint here, uh, there's a case that was just filed in the Southern District of New York called Ingber versus NYU uh, that brings both a contract and Title VI complaints on the basis of how uh, Jewish students have felt that their uh, complaints about both speech and conduct have not been heard. And they compare it to numerous other proceedings that NYU has engaged in in other contexts. So, Professor, let's um, take a look at some things that just happened in the last several days. Earlier this week, the presidents of Harvard, MIT and Penn were all questioned at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. In the now viral video of that hearing, all three were asked repeatedly by a Congresswoman, Stefanik, whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates their university's code of conduct and rules regarding bullying and harassment. In short, they said that the answer to that question depends on the context and whether the speech turns into conduct. And on the heels of those comments, there are many who are now calling for their termination or resignation, as well as pulling funds from these schools. Do you care to comment on this turn of events? Um, yes, I can I can provide some comment on that. So if the universities, well, let me step back a little bit. So what, what Kim Yurako and I advocate is that universities explicitly embrace a First Amendment speech standard in their student handbooks and then stick to it. If they truly do that and had been doing that consistently over the years, the president's comments may well be correct. It would depend on the context, and it's possible that abstract calls for genocide, as horrific as that is, is First Amendment protected speech, right? And so in, if, the, if the universities had actually done 
a First Amendment pre-commitment, which is what we advocate. Those could have been legitimate answers. I think where they got in trouble is that they really hadn't committed to the First Amendment. Let me give you one interesting example. So President McGill of uh, University of Pennsylvania actually referenced the First Amendment and said, we follow the First Amendment in our conduct guidelines. And I went back and looked at the University of Pennsylvania student handbooks and other resources. I could not find an explicit commitment to a First Amendment standard of student speech. Uh, I found a language that I regard as pretty equivocal and that a university conduct review board, which is largely unreviewable within the university, could probably drive a truck through, uh, depending on the, the uh, uh, members of the panel and, and how those students played out before it and so forth. Um, and so the problem is they hadn't actually made this commitment. In fact, Harvard and MIT, uh, the president's Harvard and MIT did not claim that they made a First Amendment speech commitment. And so this is where they get in trouble, because when you go to the context question and whether it becomes action and whether it's fighting words and, and those doctrines that we're familiar with from the First Amendment, you know, really depends on whether that's something that the university has actually committed to. When they commit to a civility code, that's something where they can punish speech that is not, you know, that is uh, First Amendment protected speech, uh, then they have to enforce that equitably. Right. I think what the Congress people were trying to point out, and I think probably did so, is that they actually haven't committed to a First Amendment standard of speech. Uh, they have actually committed to, in some sense, a higher conduct standard than would be required by the First Amendment. But then they didn't enforce it equitably and certainly don't seem to be enforcing it uh, regarding anti-Semitic speech right now. Professor, last question here. I mean, everything you're saying makes sense, but in, in sort of the court of public opinion, which obviously the congressional hearings were meant to appeal to this week. Yeah. I think the average person watching those hearings doesn't probably get the nuances of balancing First Amendment protections and the need to protect free speech with abhorrence for things like calling for genocide of an entire race of people, right? So how yeah. difficult is this an example of trying to, you know, advocate for and protect constitutional rights while also dealing with the realities of what we're seeing in the real world on campuses every day. That's that's ultimately a huge challenge, correct? I, I don't disagree with that. I can say that the, there were two courses the presidents could have taken that protect them from liability here. One course would be to say, you know what, and then we're going to go back to our universities and we're going to enforce our conduct codes like we've enforced them for everybody else, and we're not going to make an exceptions when Jewish people are being targeted, right? They could have said that. They said, I know that's what it looks like right now, but we're going to vigorously enforce this. Just give us time. You'll see what's going to come, right? We're fully seized of this. They didn't say that. <laughs> they did not say that. The other thing they could have said is, look, uh, universities went off the rails about 10 years ago, and we started punishing speech that we should not have punished. And we know that optics are really, really bad, that we're now embracing free expression. Uh, but we have to write this ship. And I'll say, I'm speaking as a president now, hypothetically, what Hamas did was an atrocity. We have students and faculty who celebrated that atrocity. And I regret that such people are part of our community. But I cannot discipline them. I cannot expel them. I cannot punish them. Punish them. I admit we've engaged in some content-based discrimination regarding speech and we violated academic freedom, we're going to work harder on that goal. Uh, but here's the other thing we're going to do. 
we're not going to try to stop students who are spouting hate speech from being doxxed, which is what Penn and Harvard are trying to do at the moment. We're not going to do that anymore. And we're not going to make phone calls to their employers begging them not to revoke job offers. It, they're adults. And if they can speak like this and they can speak like this under our code, they're going to have to bear the consequences of that speech. And for students in our professional schools, that may involve some licensing problems for them. Uh, and we're not going to help them out. But we're also going to go back to our original standards from 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, maybe, where we had content neutral speech regulations. But just really quick to pick up on that point, I mean, should there even be codes, right? I mean, there's no codes in real life. Why shouldn't students be treated the same way as regular citizens? And if they decide to speak out in a way that um, embarrasses them or enrages others, then they deal with the consequences. Why should this, you know, this this little community, small in the scope of the real world, be the best, you know, have, have a code? Well, um, so I guess I... I I'm advocating, and what Kim and I advocate, really is freedom of contract, right? If you want to have, and notice that Title VI excludes religion, right? There are religious schools that require you to sign on to a statement of faith. And if you stop believing that statement of faith or act contrary to it, they can expel you. Um, or you're supposed to leave if your conscience changes. And my view is that's fine. If students are notified in advance and if it's enforced equitably, that is fine. If you, you can have a speech code, I actually don't have a philosophical problem with civility code, in a, especially in a small community of students, right, where we all have to get along and collaborate. Having a civility code has a lot to recommend it, but I just think that universities in the present political context will not be able to neutrally enforce it. If they don't neutrally enforce it, then they're both in breach of contract, and if it involves race, color, or national origin, they're in breach of Title VI. And here's a big warning I want to get out there. I'm talking about private rights of action, and our op-ed was about private rights of action. The Department of Education also has enforcement powers with regard to Title VI. Uh, the Biden Department of Education has launched some investigations, including, I believe, Harvard. If a Republican gets elected in 2024, there will be a different Secretary of Education, and I am not sure higher ed is prepared for what might be coming for it, because the Republicans at the hearing in the House were loaded for bear to put a fine point on. And whoever the Secretary of Education is might decide that he or she wants vigorous enforcement of Title VI. And they're going to get discovery and the emails from the diversity, uh, uh, equity, and inclusion offices are going to be opened. And I, if I were a university president, I would stay awake at night worrying about the outcome of those investigations. And there's going to be private lawsuits anyway. Well, on that note, so thank you, uh, Professor Schonsenbach with the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. The nation and the legal profession lost a legendary figure when former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor died earlier this month. Our next guest, Professor Eugene Volek, once clerked for O'Connor. He teaches First Amendment law at the UCLA School of Law. Professor, thank you again for joining us. When uh, Justice O'Connor then... Law student O'Connor graduated from Stanford Law School near the top of her class, rather famously. And and by the way, in two years rather than three, rather famously, she was only offered uh, jobs as a legal assistant. One prospective employer asked her uh, how well she typed. How important was Justice O'Connor's nomination to the Supreme Court and her long service in progressing uh, gender equality? Uh, well, my sense is, hard to know for sure, but my sense is it was quite important, especially for the appointment of women judges. I know to be sure there have been women judges in America since the 1920s, and there have been many women lawyers since the late 1800s and early 1900s. And by the time the justice was appointed uh, to the court, there had been quite a few women lawyers uh, uh, um, entering the profession. Uh, but I do think that at the highest levels, it was still rare to see uh, uh, appellate judges who are who are women and trial court judges, and I think she helped blaze the trail for that. So, Professor, you clerked for the late justice as a clerk who worked very closely with her. What do you think is her judicial legacy? Well, her judicial legacy is she was an important uh, vote, a deciding vote in many tremendously significant uh, court cases, um, uh, and. Uh, uh, sometimes they were loosely, might loosely be labeled kind of liberal results, more much more often conservative results. So, for example, a lot of the Supreme Court's cases uh, recognizing limits on federal power in order to protect state authority. Uh, Justice O'Connor was the necessary fifth vote there, um, and in in a uh, in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of cases, you know, when you're one of nine votes. Uh, uh, you matter, and you matter a lot. And of course, she was also often the vote uh, that was kind of somewhat centrist. So she might have gone either way. So in a sense, she was thought of a, as a swing vote and especially significant. But in any event, uh, uh, she she made a big difference in many cases. Professor, to that point, um, Justice O'Connor, before joining the Supreme Court in her early years, was was deeply involved in conservative politics in Arizona. She held deeply conservative, uh, um, by all accounts, deeply conservative feelings. Um, despite that, as you mentioned, she was frequently the swing vote in, in, in many what are considered liberal decisions. She was, of course, succeeded by Samuel Alito, who is uh, a very consistent conservative vote. And uh, I'm wondering how the justice felt about her successor and how she felt about the current very solid seven to three conservative majority? Uh, well, uh, so uh, so first, just to clarify, it's right now it's 6-3. 6-3, I'm sorry, yes. That would be that would be 10. Maybe maybe a, after, you know, these changes might be made, it might be 10. But yes, of course, 6-3. Yeah, 
Right. Um, so the justice has always had always been a what well, one might call a centrist conservative. When she was first appointed to the court, the center of gravity of the court was more or less on the center left, just because of the justices that were, were sitting on it. So she was viewed as a fairly reliable conservative vote. As the center of gravity shifted, uh, she became a centrist judge on the court, still a moderate conservative, but uh, uh, but less conservative than quite a few quite a few others. That's what led her really to become a swing vote in that respect. Um, so if you look at her voting record, I think you'll find a lot more conservative votes than liberal. You'll find you'll have found her voting a lot uh, uh, more often with arch conservatives like Justice uh, Rehnquist uh, than with arch liberals, say, than like like Justice Brennan. Um, uh, nonetheless, it's true she, together with Justice Kennedy, were more towards the center right of the court. Uh, rather than say the solid right, what she thought about the new court, uh, I, I leave to others. Uh, um, my guess is that she very much respected Justice Alito, who was a very respected uh, judge for many, many years. Uh, probably disagreed with him on some things, but you know, that that's life in the legal profession and any profession, right? You're not going to agree with everyone all the time. So, Professor, what kind of a boss was she? And as you got to know her as one of her clerks, is there something about her per- her personality that we would find surprising? Well, uh, I'm not sure how surprising. I think it had eventually become well known. On one hand, she was a very demanding uh, boss, as she should be. Uh, uh, um, uh, so you were expected to be efficient. That was a word she liked. She used in, 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 her, inter- in her interviews of clerks. Are you efficient? It was important to be efficient, as she herself prided herself on being efficient. Uh, at the same time, um, she was quite warm uh, towards her uh, towards her staff in general, and in particular towards law clerks. Um, she would take us on on uh, little trips to to see the uh, cherry blossoms blooming, to see the arboretum, to see, I think there was some exhibition at the Smithsonian. Every year there was a uh, overnight outing, either whitewater rafting or Colonial Williamsburg. Our year was Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, And I think that was part of her sense that, you know, she's a senior lawyer and there are junior lawyers working for her and she ought to look out for them. She ought to look out for their cultural growth as well as their professional. It was it was extraordinarily um, uh, interesting year, but it was also just extraordinary being around a person, not just of her achievements, but of her personal qualities as well. Okay, thank you, Professor Valak, for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Uh, very much my pleasure. Bicyclist's death in Iowa is highlighting a traffic law that doesn't protect them if they're injured in a crosswalk. Our first guest is Dr. Kara Haman. Dr. Kara Haman is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa, where her research specializes in unintentional injury prevention. Doctor, welcome to the show. So here, uh, where we are in Illinois, in the last literally week, uh, three bicyclists have died after being struck by cars, some in uh, in the north, frequently in the north side of Chicago. This follows an alarming spike across the nation, seeing an increase in bicyclists and pedestrian deaths. What are we seeing? To what do you attribute this spike? So, yes, I, I am with you on that. Um, 
a lot, there's a lot of factors going into the increases we've seen in cyclists and pedestrian uh, fatalities on our roads in the U.S. And it, people are pointing to things like distracted driving, uh, larger vehicles on the road, like uh, more of the fleet is SUVs and large vehicles that don't have as good of sight lines. And then some of it could be um, infrastructure weaknesses in our infrastructure in terms of protecting vulnerable road users. So doctor, what are crosswalk laws? So in a, every, so these are state level laws in every state, uh, there's a crosswalk, there's language in the traffic code that addresses who's protected in crosswalks. And in the U S most states, well, every state covers pedestrians and most states are defining a pedestrian as a person on foot. Um, beyond that, there is a lot of variation in who else is covered. And when when I say who else, I mean like bicyclists, people on scooters, people in wheelchairs, uh, basically anyone that's using a crosswalk that isn't on foot. And that's where this loophole or this gap in our law, um, it, that's where we're really seeing it. And so I'm, I'm here in Iowa and in our state, we are only covering uh, pedestrians as defined defined as people on foot. So how what what kind of changes should be made to encompass some of the changes that you're you're discussing? Uh, I think it could be as simple as changing the word pedestrian in the traffic code in specific to these laws to persons, persons in the crosswalk. Um, and I know we have to be careful about it. does that um, you know how we word it exactly. So we're not opening other loopholes or problems with the law, but it could be that straightforward. And um, we did in our, our preliminary look at nationwide, we believe there are at least 28 states that aren't protecting bicyclists and cross crosswalks currently. I know you're in Illinois. We actually looked into Illinois specifically, so I could speak to that. Um, actually, Illinois is doing a pretty good job. They cover bicyclists, but at the state level, uh, there are a lot of other gaps like um, skateboards, roller skates, scooters, those types of users don't appear to be protected by the state level law in, in Illinois specifically. So I think um, as simple as changing the word pedestrian to persons could cover it, or you see in, in the states that are covering these other users, they just add specifically the list of each of these other user categories. The only risk with that is then you might forget someone, <laughs> a user group, and you have you still have a gap. So, Doctor, beyond the potential change in the law, which what you say totally makes sense, but beyond that, what other measures do you think we could take to try to avoid having people be seriously injured or even killed in these accidents? I mean, clearly, the law um, changes that we're contemplating here are to make it clearer as to who is within the purview of the law, right? But ultimately... Right. Um, I, I think in isolation doesn't necessarily save lives, right? What other measures do you think we should be looking at to try to prevent these injuries from happening in the first place? Great question. Yeah. As an, as an injury prevention uh, <laughs> researcher, I, uh, obviously I want to prevent these things from happening in the first place and changing the law to be inclusive of bicyclists, for example, doesn't necessarily prevent the crash. Um, a lot of, so we, 
ultimately, I think we need to look closer at the crashes and what's causing them. One of the things that there's been some action on lately is um, right turn on red, allowing right turns on red. A lot of crashes happen where people are, t- are making a right turn. They're looking left, you know, for traffic and they're not looking right at who's going through the crosswalk, for example, or who's on the sidewalk. And that you know, the history behind that is we we have started allowing right turn on red because uh, for a fuel saving um, measure back in the 70s, and it wasn't about safety. And so now with all the rise in pedestrian and cyclist um, fatalities and injuries, people are rethinking that and saying, maybe we need to roll this back and not allow right turns on red. So there again is something that seems fairly straightforward to change. Um, and it could that itself could really prevent some of these crashes from happening. So have you all looked at the extent to which electric cars may be contributing to what's happening here because of how quiet they are and the fact that people who are in these collisions don't, especially if you're a pedestrian or a cyclist, you're not necessarily even hearing the car coming and and what impact that the advent of electric cars and how ubiquitous they've become. Have you looked at how that might be impacting this? So that's, that's a good point. I, I have not looked into that myself and I don't know that anyone has gotten that nuanced. Um, Honestly, I I think that could be plausible, but I I also know that with these advances in technology and vehicles, we have things like forward collision warning that should sort of be countering you know any effect of like the vehicle being more quiet they have more detection you know detection um devices on them to prevent crashes with pedestrians or cyclists or other road users so honestly i'd be surprised if that was a was one of the leading contributors to these crashes doctor in some parts of the world you actually have to uh renew your driver's license after we forget that a driver's license is actually a license it's grants granting you permission to operate one of the most fatal types of equipment there is out there in the world, right? But in, in this country, we, we grant people licenses at a very young age, and then they pretty much have that for life. They don't have to prove that they're competent. They don't have to prove that they're able, that physically they're able to operate this potential machinery of death. How much do you think perhaps um, some more education about what you're doing when you're driving would help? And I mean, how, mu- how many of us remember, for example, who has the right of way? Do crosswalks always have the right of way? What rights do pedestrians have? What right do bicyclists have? So I think maybe part of the solution would be some education, maybe requiring people to take a class every couple of years if they're going to operate vehicles. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we are pretty lax in the U.S. about you know the what should be a privilege to drive a vehicle. Um, and as you said, you know, usually you take one test at, at, when you're. 16, maybe, you know, around 16 and you get your license and then you have to renew it periodically. But that renewal is literally just either doing it online or walking in and say, I, my license is expired. Give me a new one. Um, without, you know, double checking their, their fitness to drive or their knowledge. And so if we go back to the crosswalk law, this loophole, if we close that loophole, that's a change in the law that needs to be communicated to drivers. So if we had some periodic education, even about things like change in, in the law, who do they need to yield to or changes in infrastructure design? We have some new infrastructure designs. Um, like for cyclists, there's these things called advanced stop boxes, the big green boxes that you know are at intersections in some places. And I know a lot of drivers have no idea 
idea what those are or how to behave, you know, how to, what to do with them. So, uh, and that's something that a lot of drivers on our road never learned in driver's ed because they've had their license way longer than they, those, that type of infrastructure has been on the road. So great point. Yeah, for sure. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Kara Hahn, a professor with the University of Iowa. Thanks for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Our next segment on Legal Faceoff is the Legal Grab Bag. Our guests are Bill Hemmelstein, the founder, CEO, and managing broker of Tenant Advisory Group, and Nima Romani, a personal injury attorney and the president of the West Coast Trial Lawyers. First up, Rich, the Trump Watch and the fraud trial in New York. Trump Watch, we need some music. We need some Trump Watch intro music. But yeah, we start off every grab bag with the inevitable latest in Trump news out of New York. Tina, yesterday, uh, the defense in the fraud case that, again, has already been decided. It must remember that, and Trump does remember this, I guess, because he's, even though he's sitting in court, he does remember that the judge already has decided that he committed fraud in his real estate dealings in New York, and this trial is only about the, the punishment. Uh, they put on a defense expert yesterday, uh, um, a uh, an expert that basically testified that there's no fraud involved, that there was no intent, right? In order to prove fraud, uh, or to prove some of the some of the damages that the judge has to decide on, presumably you have to uh, uh, show intent. And this expert, among other things, said that oh, there was no intent here. And the attorney general successfully uh, barred that testimony by saying that this is an expert; he has no basis to opine on intent. He can't get inside Trump's brain. But what was admitted, what he did testify to, was well, these were mere errors; these were mere computation errors. When Trump said that. You know, his apartment was way bigger than the market dictates or when he overinflated the value of these properties. He wasn't committing fraud, as the state alleged or as they've proven now. Uh, these are mere accounting errors and that when you are evaluating real estate, and we'll get Bill's take on this in a second, it's not a science. It's more of an art and it is really subjective. So you can't sit in judgment of Trump saying that what he did was fraudulent. Um, you know, I looked into this expert a little bit. He was actually um, in, a, in a similar case. He mixed up defendant, or in, in a similar case, citing the same statute, he mixed up defendants one time. So maybe not the most credible judge, but by all accounts, the people who were in the courtroom, you know, the judge was actually engaged in this testimony. So 
Maybe it'll persuade him. Who knows? But um, Trump, of course, was sitting there, Tina, as he is uh, uh, every day of this trial and came out and, of course, excoriated the judge again and, and this expert and, and, and supported this expert and said this expert means that the case should be dismissed. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear what our guests have to say about this, Rich, but I thought the expert was a joke. And, you know, it's just more of the same, right? Trump's got a playbook. You know, he's relitigating things in the press. What is remarkable to me is that a lot of people probably don't even realize that most of what he says isn't accurate, either legally or otherwise. And so, um, you know, it's just more of the same. I mean... Yeah, Nima, like this was an NYU professor, an expert who's been used frequently, charged, uh, what, $13.50 an hour, has charged uh, $520,000 for his work as an expert. But isn't there some argument to be made or some credible argument to be made that, um, you know, if, a, as this expert said yesterday, if a bank like Deutsche Bank would lend Trump all of this money, despite knowing what they knew about him, then... How could it be fraud? If I mean, did he defraud Deutsche Bank also? That's the argument. I mean, that, that has some credibility, I think. No. Well, first, I got to say, you know, people don't like him, but Donald Trump keeps legal commentators like us busy. He's really the gift that keeps on giving. You know, he's like this cough that I have that just won't go away. You know? <laughs> Never goes away. Yeah. But look, I mean, if you're talking about the case, really, it doesn't matter. These are all issues that have been litigated. So you're right. Some of the claims do require intent, some of the conspiracy and the fraud, but Judges already ruled that the statements are fraudulent. And importantly, Engelron has ruled that it doesn't have to be a loss to the bank. It doesn't matter if the payments were all made, there was no default. doesn't mean, um, you know, if, if Trump uh, hasn't really cost him any money. The issue is this. Because the banks believe that the loans were secured by more valuable properties, they charged him less interest, less points. So there was actually a loss. But even if there wasn't, under New York law, as long as there's a benefit to the fraudster, that's enough. So this issue has been resolved. And, you know, the NYU professor who actually previously worked for the AG, he's going to pocket a cool half million dollars. But I don't think it's going to move the needle in this case. It may make for great, you know, TV and press and all that sort of good stuff. But you're right. This case is a foregone conclusion. It doesn't matter what Trump says when he takes the stand next week. It's not a matter of if he's going to lose, but how badly. Well, talk to us. Part of the argument here is that this is Trump. This is not some ordinary property. And when he was marketing these properties, naturally, he overinflated the value of them. That's part of selling real estate. No, you, you know, you're involved in real estate. Talk to us about it. Sure. So first of all, we all agree that Trump has never really dabbled in the truth. That's not really been a part of uh, his M.O. Now, and to your point earlier, Rich, when you are valuing property, it's not an exact science. There's some leeway. Where the problem lies is when you're inflating your property by multiple times what other people might think it's worth. Now, yes, uh, you could look to Deutsche Bank and say, well, they approved it. And as Melma just pointed out, it doesn't matter. But they probably gave away some points and, and uh, lost the profitability on those loans. But at the end of the day, we're talking a property that let's say might be worth $10 million that he values at $120 million. And so that is egregious. That is fraud. And there should be consequences for that. Okay. Next, uh, Tina, a couple of students at NYU are trying to teach the administration. 
administration, a lesson in anti-discrimination. Yeah, Ron. So as we discussed with one of our guests earlier in the show, um, the outcry at universities across the country continues in the wake of the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel. Beyond Harvard, MIT, and Penn, there's at least one more school that's receiving a lot of scrutiny right now, and it's NYU, where last month, three Jewish students who are juniors at the university filed suit against the university over its alleged failure to enforce its anti-discrimination policies in the face of harassment against Jewish students. The students allege that NYU was among the worst campuses for Jewish students and that by failing to enforce its policies, it's creating a hostile educational environment in which Jewish students are subject to pervasive acts of hatred, discrimination, Mm -hmm. harassment, and intimidation in violation of Title VI. The students claim that their schoolwork has suffered and that they've been forced to either stay in their campus housing or to leave campus and to stay with friends and family rather than being out on campus where they claim activists are actively and openly threatening them. Apparently, social media is playing a big part in this, too. And one of the plaintiffs said she became particularly fearful after seeing social media posts from NYU students stating things such as from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free and liberation is on its way. Two of the plaintiffs have said that they witnessed student activists at a rally burning an Israeli flag and doing things such as making slit your throat gestures at the Jewish students. The students claim that their concerns and complaints that they've raised to the administrators and the university president have been ignored, slow walked or met with gaslighting and that they've been told that their fears are exaggerated and that they've been referred to a hotline for students coping with emotional challenges. The lawsuit also insinuates that NYU has received a massive influx of concealed donations from foreign sources, including Qatar, which allegedly the claim is shelters and protects Hamas leaders and helps fund the terrorist organization. And their claims that it contributed over $2.7 billion in undocumented funding to institutions of higher education. NYU has responded by claiming that the lawsuit is full of false claims and that it maintains what is arguably the largest academic presence in Israel of any major U.S. university. It also says that it was among the first universities in the U.S. to publicly condemn Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel. So, Rich, uh, just, you know, tough times. I mean, we've been talking about this story. We've been talking to professors. We've been talking to other people about what's been going on at the university since the attack. And it's just really tough stuff right now. Yeah. I mean, as you know, my daughter is a freshman at NYU, so I'm fairly uh, cognizant of this issue. And uh, on a lot of the discussion boards with parents, um, you know, we're spending uh, what is literally the highest tuition in the country for a university and we expect that the university will provide, you know, some degree of safety measures. We're not asking for, you know, more than just what's what what would be expected from any any community, any school. So, yeah, the reactions by the school uh, has been slow and 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 pretty weak. By the same token, you have to understand, in defense of the university, that and to the point of our earlier guest, I mean, this is a university. It's meant to be a place for free expression, free speech. 
Um, and also what has to be understood is that NYU is not a traditional campus. Of course, this issue is playing out in campuses all across the country, but particularly at NYU, you know, NYU is an urban campus. There's not one central location. The central meeting point, the quad, so to speak, is Washington Square Park, which is a public space, which is, you know, a hotbed of all sorts of activity at all hours of the day. You can't really, in NYU's defense, police Washington Square Park. You know, that's partially a New York responsibility. So I understand the lawsuit. I think it's a it's it's a it's a meritorious lawsuit. And let's, you know, back and find out through discovery what the university has known, how long they've known it and whether there are any other you know bad actors involved. But um, there is also a limitation as to how you can police the stuff. When we see not just at New York, not just in the United States, but all across the world, you know, thousands upon thousands of people are protesting. Um, so. You know, that's my take on it. Um, Bill, what's, what's your thoughts on this lawsuit? So, you know, first of all, all bigotry is rooted in misinformation and, right, the teaching of, of hatred. There's two sides to every story. No one likes what's going on in, in Israel. No one's happy about it, right? We don't, no one wants innocent people to be killed. Um, but obviously this goes back a long way. And, and I, can, I can speak that as a Jew in America, I am more fearful than I have ever been. Um, you know, last night was the first night of Hanukkah. Normally we put a menorah up in our window. I'm not doing that this year. And so my point in, in stating this is that I do feel that all people should be protected from feeling scared, right? From be, being threatened, from being attacked. And was this the same article where the Congresswoman was questioning the MIT, Harvard, and the um, the people at Congress, or was that another article we're going to be covering? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the hearings this week where they hauled in the three presidents of some uh, private universities when their, you know, their performance was abhorrent to most, and they've, two of them have since apologized. But yeah, same concept, this idea that uh, these universities are not only not doing anything to uh, protect against anti-Semitism, but are actually supporting it in many ways. So, yeah, right. same when, concept. When, when there's a comment that says we need to eradicate all Jews, that's very threatening. And that's what this congresswoman was trying to get at is asking each uh, president of the school, you know, is that a threat? And they all said, well, only if it's acted upon. And I think we all know that there's this thing called hate speech. It's very threatening and it can be very dangerous. It can be inciting and it can lead to action. But I would like to see, it's nice that they're apologizing. Um, it's nice to see that there's a lot of support from uh, wealthy donors or someone that had uh, said they want to withhold their $100 million donation unless the president uh, resigns or is fired. Um, I just think that, that any, any group of people cannot be made to feel as if those around them want to eradicate them. <laughs> I don't think anybody should feel that way. Nemo, what's your thoughts on this, on the merits of this lawsuit? Yeah, man, this is such a sad situation right now. I mean, obviously, what's going on in Israel and Gaza, but here in the United States, you know, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, I mean, it's on the rise. I mean, these are college kids that have to deal with this, but just, you know, Jewish, Palestinian Americans, I mean, I wish I had an answer. I don't know how much this lawsuit is going to move the needle. It's such a huge problem right now, and, you know... I've been on the show many times. I do also the TV and radio and, you know, I'm usually pretty forceful in my remarks because I have strong opinions. I just don't know what the answer is. I hope that these colleges can get it right, protect these kids, 
And then, you know, my heart breaks for the people really on the front lines in Israel and Gaza. I mean, thousands of innocent people have suffered um, because of some horrific terrorist attacks. And at least I hope um, us in America, we can just be kinder to um, those who aren't like us. And hopefully we can find some path forward because it's it's really sad and it's a very divisive issue. And um, I agree. It's scary for folks um, of the Jewish faith right now. You know, there's certainly something to be said about protecting free speech, right? But there's certain limitations. For example, you know, when you're saying things that could potentially hurt others, like yelling fire in a crowded movie theater, you're not allowed to do that. Well, is that violating someone's right to free speech? So I do think that there needs to be a line that's drawn that says, look, you are welcome to your opinion. uh, But when you're out shouting things like, let's eradicate all Jews, to me, that's crossing a line or eradicate any uh, group of people. That's crossing a line. Yeah, I, mean, I agree I, with I got, you, I, Bill. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Yeah, right, we got to keep moving. We got to keep moving, guys. So, okay, uh, let's move on. Let's pivot to uh, rap music, Rich. Grammy winning rapper Young Thug's Rico trial is underway in Atlanta right now. Yeah, I mean, interesting testimony. Interesting. I mean, speaking of legal strategies, you got to give Young Thug's. Uh, defense attorney some credit because, um, you know, uh, he's basically on trial for being a thug, Tina, right? I mean, his name is Young Thug. And this week, the attorney for Young Thug said that his, who, by the way, his real name is Jeffrey Williams. He told the jury that his client's nickname stands for truly humbled under God. That's why he's called Young Thug, not because he's a thug. He also said that, uh, Young Thug's 2022 hit, Pushin' P, which was also featuring um, Gunna, who's Ron Brown's favorite uh, artist, and Future. Uh, he said that the P referred to on the track, <laughs> you can't say this stuff with a, with a straight face, stands for positivity. Yeah, not, right. Not, not some other thing for P. So, um you got to hand it to the defense lawyers here. He's, he's merely a misunderstood young man that is just all about positivity. And he's a, he's a young man who's humbled under God. That's the, what thug means. I didn't see the decimal points, though, for the acronym. acronym. Tina, persuaded by Yeah. That? Yeah, no, sorry. I'm, I'm not. I, I think probably a better um, defense would be to sort of lean into who you are yeah, and come up with it. another and come up with another defense rather than leading with the defense that you know what we all know to be true about whether it's what thug is p or or what have you whatever is on the menu rather than trying to like convince us of something that doesn't pass the haha test let's lean into something that's a little bit more believable well, to that point, Nima, I mean, actually, Thug's lawyers did also maybe try that playbook because they read from a, an 1895 poem, uh, the sequel to the Jungle Book, called the Second Jungle Book, and talked with a law of the jungle and that there's someone who's a leader of the pack. The wolf is the leader of the pack. And they compared Young Thug to the leader of the pack. So, I, Which is it? Is Young Thug just a you know victim who is truly humbled under God, or is he, in fact— the leader of the pack, which you got to, I think you got to pick a story and go with it to the jury. You're, you're a jury veteran. Nima. What do you think? Yeah. I've been covering this trial too live and I got to say the defense is getting an A for creativity, but <laughs> the trial is moving at a snail's pace. And it's actually interesting because 
Look, I'm obviously we're all familiar with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. She's brought this sprawling RICO indictment. It's really a preview of the Trump case, even though obviously it's a very different case because we have multiple defendants. So every witness gets to get be cross-examined by a half dozen or more defense lawyers. There's objections left and right. So it's probably one of the slowest moving and most frustrating trials I've had to cover in my 20-year legal career. And, and this is a preview for Trump 2024. I mean, we're going to be you know, old men and women uh, before that case is finalized. So 2024, we'd be lucky 2024. I mean, that trial is good. That Rico trial is going to take forever. She loves Rico though. She, she, she charged those teachers yeah. with Rico yeah. a few years back. But look, and I get it. Cause you get everyone on the hook. You got this, you got this vast conspiracy and then, you know, you got your overt acts and obviously in the young thug case, YSL case, they're talking about murder, but you can really put a lot of pressure on those co-defendants to plead. And, some of them end up pleading, you know, Gunna pled, you know, Powell, Chesbro, some of these individuals pled. But if they don't plead guilty, you can't take a dozen or more defendants to trial at once. It's a yeah. not, it's prestige, it's procedurally just not a good idea. And it's just going to be a disaster, especially when you have Secret Service protection. So um, frustrating case to watch. And I'm sure we're going to be covering on the show for quite some time. Yeah. Speaking of uh, this taking so long, the jury selection alone took almost a year just to get the jury set up. So imagine what the rest of it's going to take. But, you know, I feel like uh, Young Thug and, and his attorney are, are taking a page out of the Trump playbook, which is to say, let's ignore the facts and the truth and just create a circus and a distraction. And maybe people will get lost in the showmanship. Uh, that, so that that's I see a lot of parallels there. They got, they got some of the same lawyers, too. So... <laughs> Okay, and Tina, we're going to stay at the uh, intersection of uh, music and the law with different kind of music. Hall and Oates are playing one-on-one -on -one in the courtroom where Daryl Hall is suing his longtime musical partner saying, I can't go for that. Oh, my God. Wow. You get kudos, <laughs> kudos for dusting off the 40-year-old Hall and Oates catalog. Well oh, done, Ron. They're terrific. Thank you. Yeah, no, I actually am a big Hall & Oates fan myself. And this is, in my in my estimation, Daryl Hall being Daryl Hall. But apparently he's been granted a TRO against his bandmate, John Oates. Um, Hall and his trust, the Daryl Hall Revocable Trust, filed a sealed complaint against John Oates and his trust in the middle of last month in Nashville. And on that same day, Hall's legal team filed that motion for a TRO and it was granted after a $50,000 restraining bond was obtained. So for those of our listeners who don't know what all the hullabaloo is about, it's about the rights in their music. Um, Hall filed suit to start the arbitration process where he's contesting John Oates' attempts to sell his share of their business partnership without Daryl Hall's permission. Hall claims that John Oates blindsided him and that their relationship and his trust in him have deteriorated. Oates claims that Daryl Hall is being inflammatory and was wrong in taking their very private dispute public. Whatever the case may be, the judges hit pause on what Daryl Hall has characterized as John Oates' attempted quiet sale of his stake in Whole Oates Enterprises to the investment management firm Primary Wave. 
And that is going to be stayed probably until February 17 or until an arbitrator is able to weigh in. So a lot of their agreements and papers are confidential. The judge did unseal some of the filings, but not everything. And Hull Oats Enterprises is the entity that owns a lot of Hull and Oats material, including rights in their songs, trademarks, personal name and likeness rights, record royalty income, and website and social media assets. Apparently, the duo has been contemplating a business divorce for at least some time. And about a year ago, Daryl Hall said he was entertaining John Oates' push to dissolve their touring entity and a separate partnership relating to publishing rights. Hall has proposed dissolving Whole Oats Enterprises in its entirety. And what's interesting, Rich, is that apparently Primary Wave, which is the investment management firm that John Oates wants to sell his share to, already owns an interest in Whole Oats and actually is the same investment management firm that's actually bought rights in other rock star portfolios, such as Stevie Nicks. And Daryl Hall has claimed that he's got some concerns about Primary Wave having a bigger stake in and the rights to their music and other sort of what I would call image and likeness rights and trademarks and so forth. And he's concerned about what um, they may be able to do with things like his image and likeness. So, Rich, we've covered this kind of story many times over the years on Legal Faceoff, whether it's Journey or Holland Oates or you name the band. This ends up happening. It's it's just tough to see. Ron and I are both, I think, the biggest Holland Oates fans, at least in this in this show um but it's tough to see i mean these guys have been together for 50 years so yeah it's kind of a case of possession obsession when you think about it but <laughs> what i was gonna say and you know daryl hall saying that every time you go away you take a piece of my licensing uh, with you but but i digress um it's the biggest you know it, this is actually the second biggest uh uh duo separation in the story you know the biggest split between two entities is um, that between John Oates and his mustache. What happened to the, <laughs> the most famous mustache and one of those ma- famous mustaches in musical history? That was that was his signature, the long curly mullet for Oates and then the, the mustache. But, you know, uh, Hall is of the old school. Hall has said repeatedly that when it comes to, you know, publishing, he said you never sell your publishing. That's kind of an old school mu- uh, music mentality. But we've seen the last five or six years, how lucrative a market it is. Springsteen sold his for half a billion, <laughs> right? I mean, um, Katy Perry did it smartly. She only sold the rights to, I think, six of her albums. Because on the one hand, you know, it's very lucrative. But if you're a touring artist, you can make a ton of money still in the music industry, not from record sales, but from um, tours. So I understand the perspective of not wanting to sell it if you're still a viable you know, uh, 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 seller of tickets. Um, is Hollow Notes that? Probably not. But on the other hand, you look at the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones just announced a major tour. They're coming off a number one album and a number one song. Imagine if they sold off their catalog, they would not be able to, if they sold off all the rights, they would not be making money off this tour. So you really, it's really a question of timing and where you are in your career. You could make more money even in your 70s or 80s. But um, Bill, uh, you love Hollow Notes. I know that also. Of course. Just don't ask me to name a song like you asked me to name a Taylor Swift song the last time I was on here. But, uh, you know, I don't know yeah, a lot about you just, trademark. You just, you just stepped all over our out, our out, our out question. But. 
Well, I'll, I'll have to look one up then. I'll give me some time here. But uh, you know, I don't know a lot about trademark patent rap laws, but you know, Daryl Hall has been very clear about saying, look, John and I are brothers, but we are not creative brothers. We are business partners. And typically, when you run a business with somebody, you solicit that other person's input. You don't just go off and make decisions and do things. And so I tend to agree with Daryl. They're a team in business. They own these songs. There's a lot of value to them. They need to work in tandem. They need to cooperate. But there's a lot of money on the line here. And, you know, I'd like to see them work together. Okay, Rich, uh, a mother-in-law in South Carolina is challenging whether her late daughter's marriage is legal or not. Yeah, this was a, uh, a story we covered and it's been widely covered. Tragic story, obviously. This was a, uh, a couple that got married, legally married. There's no question about that in South Carolina uh, about a year ago. And while riding in a golf cart um, on their wedding night, a drunk driver uh, hit them and uh, killed the, uh, the woman, the young lady who had just got married um, without a will. The assets, her assets passed to her spouse, um, Eric Hutchinson, who survived the crash. Uh, soon after that, there were lawsuits, as you could imagine, um, what we call dram shop lawsuits, alleging that the um, driver of the vehicle, the drunk driver, was overserved. Those lawsuits were um, settled with releases of liability, but the uh, mother of the decedent stepped in and said that um, the beneficiary of the lawsuits should not be the husband. Again, when there's no will, uh, the assets were passed to the surviving spouse. The mother of the bride said that they were never legally married. Her legal theory is that because they did not spend the night together, that because they were only recently married that night, then she should be the beneficiary as the mother and not the surviving spouse. Um, of course, the spouse has said that that's not true. I am the rightful heir to the estate, to the assets, and they should go to me. Again, we've covered stories like this all the time, Tina, about how um, money trumps grief, money trumps family, uh, people's ugly sides come out. You know, we don't know all the details. I did see a video of the mother yesterday uh, discussing um, her perspective on this. Not a great look for her. I don't know under what legal. I don't. I'm not an expert in South Carolina matrimonial law, but to me, once you are declared man and wife, you are man and wife. It doesn't matter if you are married for a minute or for a decade after that. The husband should clearly step in and um, be the beneficiary. No, I I completely agree, Rich. I mean, you know, unless there are some sort of allegations of foul play here that somehow the husband was involved in her demise, which I'm not aware of there being any here. I think it's pretty cut and dry. Her husband, whether, as you said, he was her husband for two minutes or, you know, 20 hours or whatever is entitled to the assets, especially because she died without a will. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Nima, I mean, this seems to harken back to maybe some, um, earlier days when you cannot consummate, maybe the concept of marriage yeah. is that it's not legal unless it's consummated by a night together. I mean, this, I don't know, this seems to be a nutty theory entirely. 
Oh yeah, this is a, a legal hail mary to say the least. You're relying on some antiquated law, maybe there in South Carolina. Obviously, I don't practice there, but you're right. Whether it's a wrongful death claim or a survivorship action, doesn't really matter, right? It's really the next of kin, and when there is a surviving spouse, their children, it's their claim. So parents like to get involved sometimes because, look, let's be honest, there's a lot of money at stake, and it's sad. Obviously, it's a tragic case, but. Now the family's being divided even further. But really, the law in most states, including my home state of California, it's pretty clear. You have a surviving spouse, whether it's a minute, whether they had relations, whether they didn't, whether it's a decade, doesn't matter. They have the claim and the surviving parents do not. Yeah. And Bill, a big red flag was when the mother was seen on when she was interviewed, um, you know, grieving for her, her daughter. Again, very tragic story. She took pains to say that her daughter's name is her maiden name, not her married name. That struck me at the time when I was watching it as very strange. I think it's a money grab on uh, the play of the, the mother here. I mean, the guy, the, the husband even offered half of the settlement. He offered half the money to her and she de declined it to continue to pursue this, what I believe is a frivolous legal claim. You know, again, I, I think we've touched on this. I, I'm not a, a matrimonial law attorney either, but I think when you both say I do, uh, that's typically when you're married, in most states, uh, whether you've, you know, I've never seen something that says you have to go to sleep together and then wake up in the morning, then you're married. It doesn't work that way. They had the ceremony, they got married, and, <clears throat> you know, it, it is a very tragic story. And by the way, this guy didn't plan anything out. He was in the hospital too. Him and I think there were maybe two other people that survived, but they were heavily uh, incapacitated as well. And, and I don't think he would plan out such a deliberate attack that puts himself at risk. It's a horrible story. But the, the, the facts are the facts, the law is the law, and he's entitled to whatever settlements may come of it. Okay, and Tina, how about this? A former law school professor at the Antonin Scalia School of Law is suing them for investigating allegations that he slept with students. Yeah, Ron. So Joshua Wright, who's formerly a professor at the Antonin School, Scalia School of Law at George Mason University, which humorously is also known as ass law filed a lawsuit against the university for unspecified damages arising from what he claims was sexual harassment when the school investigated a complaint brought by one of the first-year students he started sleeping with. Now, what's interesting here is that there is no allegedly started sleeping with one else because he's already filed a lawsuit where he's admitted to sleeping with one else. And he's apparently got a track record of doing this. Um, people have been coming out of the woodwork to share details about how he has historically used a bit of a carrot and stick approach with these women students that he sleeps with to keep the relationships going and how he in fact likes to pit them against each other to get them jealous of one another. One of them filed actually a Title IX complaint against him, to which he responded by filing a $108 million defamation case, again, where he admitted that he was sleeping with them while they were first years. This lawsuit that he has filed against the school claims that the university retaliated against him for his lawsuit and that it used different standards when deciding whether to allow his complaint 
to go forward against his accuser. And he claims repeatedly that the university um, acted it like it was favoring his female accuser instead of ensuring a fair due process to him. And so he's brought this complaint for various violations, including Title IX, Equal Protection Clause, and the Due Process Clause. So, Rich, I mean, we live in a very odd world here. If when someone's investigating claims that you've sexually harassed, you turn it around and claim that they're harassing you. That's actually, um, to Nima's point earlier, that is really an innovative legal theory. He flipped it. See what he did there? He flipped it. Tried to flip it. Go away. Just He's go a away. flipper. Go away, <laughs> professor, forever. Yeah, that's all I got. Nima, Bill. Anyone want to defend the uh, professor? No, no, but I mean, this is, a, this is a trend that we're seeing. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. That's a tale as old as time. But really, this is something actually during the Trump administration when they're using federal right. anti-discrimination laws to protect men from being singled out. So there was a case in Pennsylvania that I think uh, someone was recently victorious saying that he was discriminated as a man. So, hey, look, maybe we're seeing a trend where you know, men are going to take advantage of these statutes to go on the offense. You know, I, I'm reminded of the this thing called the Me Too movement, where it's very, it's highly inappropriate for one to use their status to coerce someone into fulfilling their sexual advances or succumbing to their sexual advances. Now, I feel like if this happens one time, hey, if this is someone who is attracted to someone else and they had a relationship other people can judge whether it's appropriate or not. But when it happens over and over and over again, now I think we've crossed the line. We've got, we've got an issue on our hands. And um, it's just, it's unfortunate that that that's where people use their, their status, their, their, you know, uh, leadership, whatever it is, they, they use their, their status to coerce others into doing things that they want them to do. Okay. And finally, Rich, uh, staying on the topic of ass law, riders on the Disneyland, it's a small world ride, saw more than they expected or wanted to recently. Yeah, I mean, you literally can't make these stories up, thank God. Um, you know, it couldn't be on the uh, the Manhattan ride or on the uh, on the roller coaster. It has to be. It's a, it's a small world. <clears throat> Man gets naked on It's a Small World. I mean, it just reminds me of the Seinfeld episode, right? I mean, shrinkage, shrinkage, a water ride, naked. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, this guy got arrested for jumping off the small world to wandering around the ride naked. Not, I guess, part of the ride, Tina. Um, and not not one of those, like, you know, animatronic country bear jamborees or something, but an actual human being wandering around nude um, during the uh, the India portion of the ride. I don't know why he chose India, but um, not a good luck for that ride. Not a not a great ride for those. No, folks. no, and you know, as we've talked many times on this show, we live in the era of social media, and so <laughs> while <clears throat> I can understand people are impetuous and would like to get their you know fifteen minutes or fifteen seconds of fame, um, this was obviously shared by numerous people who are on the ride on social media and. I've got to believe that if this person is ever in the market for a job or I don't know anything that matters at this point, 
that all people need to do is, you know, get on social media and find, you know, kind of like, you know, Bartman became infamous for, you know, the ball and the infamous Cubs game. This person is going to become famous for being the, it's a small world streaker. So, you know, not, not really something I'd want to be famous for rich. Let's end off with this guys. Uh, Bill, Nima, we'll go around the horn. Uh, it's a small world. Not one of my favorite rides. I've been on it many times. That song gets in your head and it can never, ever get out. Uh, it's one of the more annoying songs of all time, in my opinion. But uh, what's your favorite amusement park ride, Bill? I would say it was Avatar, Flight of, uh, Flight of Passage. Just so cool to essentially feel like you're, you're in, you're flying around. It, was, it, it did give me a little bit of a headache, maybe nauseous, but it was amazing. <laughs> All right, Nima, you're you're near Disney. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm in LA now, but born and raised in Orange County. I gotta yeah. say, the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland—that's my favorite. Nice, Ron. Uh, probably the Superman ride up at uh, Six Flags. It's pretty cool. Mm. Act like yeah. a lion. Absolutely, Tina. So I'm not a big amusement ride fan. I get kind of motion sickness on these rides, but I I loved. At Six Flags, like the water rides and stuff, I kept a team. Mm-hmm. Nothing crazy. Yeah, I like coasters. I'm a big Space Mountain fan from the uh, from Disney. Uh, although there was that old, uh, maybe it was an urban myth where someone stood up. You ever hear that one where someone allegedly yeah. stood up during the Space Mountain ride and got beheaded? I think that's one of those Disney urban legends. Yeah, I, I agree. Heard that too. Yeah, I don't think it's true, but I'd heard that myth. Okay, well, that is our podcast for today. We'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Kara Haman, uh, Professor Max Johnson, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Professor Max Johnsonbach, Professor Eugene Volk, and Bill Heimelstein and Nima Romani. Thank you guys for uh, for joining us today on uh, Legal Podcast. And our producers, Lisa Stiegel and Ben Anderson, don't forget to like, subscribe, and to share the Legal Face-Off podcast. And if you enjoy it, please rate five stars because it deserves it. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ron Brown, and we will talk to you in a few weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.